6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Uh, John Selden was a leading historian and legal authority in England, and he regarded for his learning, he had a, a large personal library of over 8,000 volumes, and as he was dying, he said to Archbishop Usher, quote, I have surveyed most of the learning that is among the sons of men, and my study is filled with books and manuscripts on various subjects. But at present, I cannot recollect any passage out of all my books and papers whereon I can rest my soul. Save this from the sacred scriptures, quote, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, close quote. So that's a testimony. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. Now here's the reference to Epaphras. We've talked about in the introduction a little bit. Um, he's, his, his outstanding characteristic, apparently, was that of fervency and prayer. It's interesting how many people are remembered as prayer warriors. Uh, this was written about 60 to 62 A.D. In 62 A.D. is when James was martyred. Do you know what James, the brother of our Lord, what his nickname was? Anyone know what James's nickname was? They called him Old Camel Knees. <laughs> because he spent so much time in prayer. Anyway, Epaphras was in Rome with Paul. He called him a fellow prisoner, which implies he was with Paul in prison. Not necessarily imprisoned, but voluntarily joining Paul in his situation. Now, Epaphras is a shortening of Epaphroditus that's referred to in the Philippian letter and in a couple of places. And uh, it could be the same person or it might be a, because it was a common name in that day. And uh, for what that's worth. Okay. And you also learned of Paphras, our dear servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. Learned of. It actually, the word actually means discipled by. Discipled by him. That's so used in, in other references. Uh, the word disciple is used 260 times in both gospel and acts. Retaken under wing and trained, if you will. To learn as a, as a disciple is 25 times in the New Testament. What does that really mean? Learning by living. Learning by living. And that's what the fellowship in the local church is all about. Not just to be a witness, but to make disciples. That implies a program. That implies supervision. That implies someone really caring and taking, taking you under wing. Who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Faith cometh by hearing, Paul reminds us in Romans 10, 17. We learn to walk by what? By faith. We learn to work by faith. Each one of these has references, First uh, Thessalonians 1, 3, and so on. And faith, of course, gives power to prayer in Luke 17. And faith is our shield against Satan's darts and the armor of God in Ephesians 6. 
who has also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Love is the evidence of salvation. Love is the evidence of salvation. And uh, see, doctrinal correctness will never atone for a lack of love. And that is the Lord's message in his letter to the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2. They were very strict on doctrine. Paul had visited the Ephesian elders and uh, warned them that there will be wolves in the flock and to guard against that in Acts chapter 20. When Jesus writes the letter to the Ephesians, they apparently did that well. You don't tolerate them that are, um, that say they're apostles that are not. So they got their doctrinal thing straightened out. But he says, nevertheless, I have something against you. You've lost your first love. They're so busy on the business of the king, they had no time for the king. We've got to guard against that ourselves, that we don't get so busy that we don't have just time for fellowship with them in prayer. Doctrinal correctness will never atone for a lack of love. And uh, it's interesting, this is the only verse in this epistle that mentions the Holy Spirit explicitly. And it is in connection with love, interestingly enough. See, the Holy Spirit never speaks of himself, we're told. In, uh, and, and this is in contrast with Ephesians, where it's all through there. So your prayer life. You know, it's unlikely that any other writer has given us as much insight into our own prayer life as is contained in the following verses. We're going to have some verses here which will give us a glimpse into Paul's prayer life. Verses 9 through 11 will set forth the blessings for which Paul prays, and 12 to 14, the list for which he gives thanks. And they're each different. And some are not forfeitable, and some are blessings for which we need to pray daily. And uh, let's look at these. Verse 9. For this cause, Paul says, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. That's interesting. He did, these are people he hadn't met. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, that they had become Christians, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. With the knowledge. Epignosis. And uh, that act, the term actually in the Greek means a super. Gnosis is knowledge. Epignosis is super knowledge, if you will. And Paul is deliberately using this term in contrast to the Gnostics which claim that they had superior knowledge. No, your superior knowledge is what Paul, is, is what Paul can boast about because it comes from Christ. And it's a coined word, if you will. And uh, it's the keynote of Paul's reply to the conceit of Gnosticism. And uh, the, the cure for these intellectual upstarts is not ignorance, not obscurantism, but more knowledge of the will of God. That's the way you eclipse that, really, in effect. And all, with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We're talking spiritual wisdom, Sophia in the Greek. It's used six times in this epistle. And it really refers to the practical knowledge which comes from God. And so James uh, 1, 5 and other places. Wisdom and spiritual understanding. Synesis, which is also used in chapter 2 in Colossians, which speaks of clear analysis and decision-making in applying this knowledge to various problems. So they're closely related, but yet still distinctive. See, the False teachers, in contrast, offered only the appearance of wisdom, uh, which captivated their minds and lives of, in legalistic regulations. But true spiritual wisdom is both stabilizing and liberating, not putting them in bondage, which is really what they were doing. Truth is not learned through intellect alone. 
And Paul emphasizes neither an abstract intellectualism nor an occult experience in powers and such. Uh, 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 he, but, uh, but rather a thorough knowledge of God's will in accordance with his wisdom and perception, which he goes on with here. And uh, Now, in using these terms, Paul is deliberately picking up the language, the vocabulary, if you will, of the Gnostics. But he turns the meaning of those words against his false teachers. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That should be one of our prayers, right? To increase the knowledge of God. That ye might walk worthy. Walking worthy of your vocation. Ephesians 4 deals with that. Walking worthy of the gospel. Philippians 1. Walking worthy of God. 1 Thessalonians 2. These are common themes in all of Paul's letters. Faith is understanding step and understanding is faith's reward, according to Augustine. Good quote. The end of all knowledge is conduct. That's Lightfoot's approach. And I think that's a, the end of all knowledge is conduct. Do, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. And uh, it, that's not found in any other passage in the New Testament. The Greek uses it. It's a preference of the will of others before our own, according to uh, Thomas. And uh, now that's uh, the, the term that comes close to this is fiduciary, putting somebody else's interests ahead. And the word for fiduciary in the Greek is koinonon, koinonia, which is from which we get the name of our ministry. But uh, being fruitful in every good work, and uh, every good work, um, everything in a believer's life is sacred. There is no secular. We think of things that divide the world in secular, sacred and secular. Not in a believer's life. Everything in a believer's life should be sacred. There is no secular. And uh, I sound like Yoda, don't I? And, uh, you do or you do not. There is no try, right? <laughs> okay. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Now, the same dynamic that raised Jesus from the dead operates in us, the Holy Spirit. That's quite a statement and quite a thing to grasp. That's one reason that I think many of us that are people of the book, as the Muslims might say, people of the Bible, uh, we don't celebrate a crucified Christ. We celebrate a risen Christ. And there's a distinction. There's a distinction. The same power, the same dynamic that raised Christ from the dead operates in each of us. That's breathtaking. That was uh, the Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, Strength of all might according to his glorious power unto all patience. Not with stoical uh, tolerance, but with joyfulness. Joyfulness is always associated with patience, interestingly enough. Joyfulness isn't gaiety or happiness. Joyfulness is, is, the, is the, the pleasant fruit of patience. And... Uh, the joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah tells us, and so it goes. So endurance and patience are often associated, uh, idiomatically at least. Hopomeneo, the, the, the remaining under, implies not easily succumbing under suffering. So suffering is impl impl implicit here. And patience, macrothumia, is a long temper, is technically what it says. Really, really means self-restraint that does not hastily retaliate. And uh, 
A lack of endurance often results in despondency or losing heart, whereas a lack of patience often leads to wrath or revenge. And uh, so, a lack of endurance results in despondency or losing heart, if you lack endurance. But lacking patience leads to an impulsive act of some kind. It's a thought, anyway. And uh, at work in the Christian is no less than the power of Almighty God Himself. Wow. Not at present to exalt, but to give patience, fortitude, and endurance. The Stoic philosophers also enjoined these virtues, but like the traditional poker-faced Indian, coupled them with an attitude of complete detachment. And uh, Paul here means hopeful waiting and suffering with joyfulness. He ties the joyfulness to that. This is the Christian distinctive. Joy, not rooted in the soil of suffering, is shallow, he argues. Now, the following things that he's praying for, we already have. And we simply express thanksgiving for them. Some would argue that praying for these is to dishonor God by casting doubt upon His Word. I don't go that far, but some people look at it that way. Verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of saints in light. And we're going to get this light and darkness thing coming up. And we also have a word in, introduced here called inheritance. I'm going to suggest that many of us have no grasp of what this is really all about. We're going to defer getting into that until we get to chapter 3, where we're going to get into inheritance and how, how does that differ from some of the other blessings that uh, come our way. So, giving uh, thanks to the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And so, now this is the beginning of a list of things which, for which Paul is thankful. And all of our prayers should be filled with thanksgiving. That sounds so basic, but let's not forget that. That's, prayer is God's way of enlisting you in what He is doing. And one way to do that is to be thankful for what He has already done. And of course, inheritance, it actually is of the lot, or for our share of the lot. It's, an, it's a very old word. At first, a pebble or piece of wood used in casting lots was the thought here. And then it became the allotted portion or inheritance as here. And we'll deal, develop this more specifically uh, in chapter 3 and uh, verse 24. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. I want you to notice there's a translation going on here from darkness to light. We're going to talk about the kingdom as we go here a bit. That's part of what's in it. He hath, del he hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated kingdom. Hath translated. The word is used to describe the deportation of a population from one country to another. That's what the word in the Greek means. And you and I have been translated, you know, have translated us. We're now in a different domain, in a different among a different group. We've we've uh, been deported from one population to another. And that term, history records the fact that Antiochus the Great, that's Antiochus the Third, not Antiochus Epiphanes. Anyway, he transported at least two thousand Jews from Babylonia to Colossae. As a, that's just a historical note here. And uh, the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. We use those terms frequently. Paul will use that, especially in 1 Thessalonians 5. That, uh, that the, the, the coming of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. To everybody, no. He comes as a thief in the night to those who are in darkness. But you are children of the day, not of the night. That that day should overtake you as a thief. In other words... The believer will not be surprised when Christ returns. You don't set dates. You don't know when he's going, but you won't be surprised. It's a very interesting distinctive. Uh, 
No, it's in, what Paul is really doing there, he's not dealing with eschatology here so much as dealing with the Gnostics. He's saying he's ruling out this whole system of eons and angels that the Gnostics uh, placed above Christ. It is Christ's kingdom in which he is king. He, is, uh, he has moral and spiritual sovereignty. And uh, he, uh, he's putting Christ above these angels and whatever that the, the Gnostics uh, felt they should be worshiping. And the kingdom he's talking about here is one that is going to be established, and it's going to be established on the earth, by the way. I won't get into this in detail here, but I'll highlight one thing to you. The term kingdom of heaven is only used by Matthew, not Mark, Luke, and John. They use the term kingdom of heaven, which is an all-inclusive term. Kingdom of heaven is denotative, and it's a genitive of source, not a genitive of apposition. What do I mean by that? It's the kingdom from heaven. So don't confuse it with heaven. It's a kingdom on the earth. It has a capital. It has a, a floor, the floor plan of the palaces in Ezekiel 40 through 48. He's going to be on the earth. And um, we need to understand that. And this little parenthesis we call life is our boot camp to prepare us for the responsibilities that will be assigned to us then. And that's what we'll get into some of that as we go forward here a little bit. Light and darkness. They're common theological items, terms that are used in many religions and found even as recently in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And Paul is contrasting the realm or sphere of the new age, his new age, the age of light, with that of the present age, the evil sphere, or exousia, if you will, of darkness. We're in the current age is darkness. We have been translated into the light. And uh, elsewhere, the evil sphere of darkness is equated with the power of Satan. And, uh, well, it's so easy to go from any one of these things into a whole bunch of digressions. Because in our corollary study, the origin of evil, we get into the gap theory and the, the fact that... Uh, no, I better not even start. Let's go. <laughs> okay. It's interesting, that when you talking about dark and light, that the Hebrew term through Genesis is Erev and Boker. The evening and the morning were the first day, or day one, not first day, day one, and so forth. Erev and Boker for six days. On the seventh day, there is no Erev and Boker. So those terms originally meant going from darkness to light in the sense of steps of entropy reduction, steps of, of, of creation. And they come to mean then darkness or obscurity, that term tends to mean night, Erev. And Boker, the light, the morning, when you can, things start to become clear, the Erevan Boker process of just becomes evening and morning in the Hebrew language. And uh, it's interesting, in Genesis, that profiles each step of creation in six steps. The seventh day is still a day, but there was no Erevan Boker. That is, no creative act, act took, took place there. And uh, now it's interesting, as Gentiles, we reckon the days not from night to morning, the way the Hebrew calendar does, darkness to light, which is what it celebrates. We measure our days from midnight to midnight, from darkness to darkness. Interesting. I wouldn't make too much of that, but I think that's, that's interesting. Okay. And uh, so obviously we have just published this study in the kingdom, the power and the glory, which deals with this kingdom that's going to be on the earth ruled by Christ himself. Say, well, that's an Old Testament idea. No, that's what Gabriel told Mary when he announced the birth of Christ, that he would be 
on the throne of David. The throne of David didn't exist in those days. Rome ruled the world. And uh, when you get to the pivotal event of the book of Acts, James quotes Amos 9, uh, 9 10, and 11 that uh, the tabernacle of David, not the temple, the tabernacle of David will be established once again and so forth. So we need to understand that even at the ascension, Sabbath that's why you're going to set up the kingdom now. He says, not for you to know the time. He doesn't say he's not going to do it, but that's not, their, that's not of their concern. He's coming to set up a kingdom on the earth, and it's going to affect every one of us. And uh, we, every day that he tallies, uh, tarries, every day that he waits a little bit, gives us an extra day to repair our report card. Amen. We'll be getting to that here uh, in this study too. Anyway, moving on. Paul continues, verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Wow. The forgiveness of sins. And because we have been forgiven, we can forgive others. That conditional isn't on us. It's the reason we should be forgiving others. It's not that you won't be forgiven if you don't forgive others. That's many people misunderstand that. No, we've been forgiven. It's a done deal. We'll be talking about that. But it's because that's a done deal, we can have the freedom to exercise that to others. And that's important. And the, the parable of the unforgiving servant makes it clear that the unforgiving spirit always leads to bondage. You forgive somebody, so you unhook your bondage to him. For that, unforg for, for that unforgiveness will put you in bondage. That's one of the things my, I've, I've learned from my wife in her first book, The Way of Agape is that the most dangerous hurts you have are the justified ones because they're the hardest to let go. Someone that's wronged you and it's, your, your feelings are really justified are the dangerous ones because you won't let those go. The easy ones, well, that's fine, no problem. Those aren't the dangerous ones. Dangerous ones where you really, you've really been wronged. No. Those are the ones you want to get rid of the bondage by forgiving, because you're doing yourself the favor by forgiving him, because you're releasing that bondage. That's a very, very profound thing to grab hold of and practice. But uh, anyway, these verses, which posit a past deliverance and transference into Christ's kingdom. You're in that kingdom now. It isn't established on the earth yet, but it will be, but you are in that kingdom now. It's a past deal. A redemption which Christians have as a present possession. You've been redeemed. You may not feel any different. He's done it. These are all hallmarks in, in Paul's language here of a realized eschatology. Eschatology is a study of the last things. And we think of eschatology, well, that's the second coming. And then, no, no. You have, your eschatology is realized. It's done. It's accomplished. It's a done deal. And... Uh, so the actual new age arrived with Christ's resurrection. That started the real new age. And Christians enter it at conversion. You enter that when you've accepted Christ. You've accepted Christ. You haven't changed yet. That's a whole other story we'll get to. But you are saved, nailed. What did you contribute to that? Nothing. To try to add to that is blasphemy. Hard thing to get across. We'll get to that important. In fact, foundational issues. There are some issues we need to deal with. I would almost put it in the introduction, but I would have run too long, so I've just left. This is a good place to sort of repair this. If you've been through Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, our, which is our, sort of our preliminary, a lot of this will be familiar to you. Uh, if you've been through some of the other epistles, this will be, 
a review for you, but it's worth, well, time well spent. I want to talk about the paradigm of salvation, the whole issue of eternal security, and the origin of evil. That should take care of the afternoon, huh? <laughs> the paradigm of salvation. You know, in, within the Institute, we don't let our students use the term salvation because it's confusing. Earl Rademacher always used to come in the office and says, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And he used to say that deliberately to, conf bring, to confuse people. Are you saved? Past or present or future? What is it? All three and they're different. The paradigm, I'll call it, like a verb thing, okay. Past tense is called justification. What is justification? The gift of God of everlasting life received by faith alone in Christ Jesus. That says it all. Lots of verses on that. You can check them out. What is, when we use the term justification, it's a gift. You don't buy it. You can't earn it. It's a gift of God of everlasting life that you receive by faith alone. If you believe it, you trust it, you have it. It's done. Deal. You haven't earned it. It's a gift. The present tense of self, that's past tense. Present tense is sanctification. What is that? A work in progress that involves the faith and the works of the believer. My justification is secure. Christ accomplished it on a cross 2,000 years ago. My I'm a work in progress. We all are. I'm a work in progress. God is not finished with me yet. And I won't give you a list of the things that he's still working on me on. There's plenty of them. And... Uh, I'm a weird one. I lose my temper at inanimate objects. When a drawer sticks or hit my thumb with a hammer or something. My behavior is abominable. Now there's probably worse things I could do too, but I, I, I'm amazed at myself that I can get so angry at inanimate objects. But anyway, and there are other things, but I'll spare you that. Sanctification, a work in progress, that's present tense. Glorification, that's the future tense. That's the result of the previous aspects. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 